History, Rabbi Blywise, session, lecture number uh, 29. The, t- today, sad news, we vicariously relive history. Uh, that's what I've been suggesting, that we, the way we experience this class, is, uh, is today we lose a majority of Klal Yisrael. Very sad day. Uh, and and I, I actually am not just saying that facetiously. I, I really do think that's important. I don't think I've mentioned this. Maybe I've mentioned other shirim, but I haven't actually in history class cited the Ali Shur, Rav Shlomo Volbi, who's considered by many as the preeminent Balmusser of the last generation. He talks about instilling imuna, internalizing imuna, and he says the, he speaks to the importance of imagining and picturing yourself vicariously reliving such events as Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim and Masam Torah and everything in history so you can identify with it and internalize it and it'll make your it'll, 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 it'll make your experience as a Jew in this world so much more meaningful and rich which is very much I, mean, I learned that and I thought ooh, ooh, that's exactly what I'm doing in my whole history project personally and I don't know if you get anything out of it I know I get an immense amount out of doing this uh, by, 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 I really do feel like I'm a part of this um, to the point that, you know, yesterday in Gemarashir, or no, it was this morning in Gemarashir, I took exception to the notion that we would make a joke out of the Goyim say, you know, the, 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 the Christians who say, oh, you killed Christ, and we would say, oh, yeah, we're Christ killers, even though, for the record, we are, by our, by our own Gemara. If, if that Gemara in Mem Gimel Amad Aleph in Sanhedrin really is referring to, when it says Yeshu, that Yeshu is referring to Jesus Yashka, who, in fact, the Rambam, at least, and many others say that it is referring to Yashka, and if that's true, then we are indeed Christ killers, but you're going to, if you stick with me now uh, for the next few months, we're going to see how many atrocities were committed Dafka because the Christians were saying, you Christ killers, we would do anything but make a joke out of it, and we would take it personally as well we should, it's just in our ignorance and our collective naivete, we don't realize how, how, what a serious thing that was that they called this Christ killers and what, kind, what that led to, what kind of ramifications that, that caused. Jake? Why don't we have a day to commemorate the losses? A day like, when Mamma Kiva's students died, the 24th Jews died, we have, we have the owner. And then why don't we have a day where we all, like, the time, it's half of We do. We do. It's called Tisha B'Av. That is the day of collective mourning because, and it's not, I, I, here again, I'm not just being flippant in answering that way. Every tragedy to befall Klal Yisrael, certainly in the last 2,000 years, and there are too many for us to enumerate here, although I am going to in, 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 in the history class in the, in the next few months, um, every single calamity is an extension of Chorben Beis HaMikdash. Because when the temple was destroyed, maybe we don't quite appreciate how calamitous, calamitous it was for the Jewish people that the Beis HaMikdash was destroyed, but everything spun out of control. Among other things, HaKadosh Baruch Hu, as it were, hid his face. We call it a period of Hesterponim, in which history unfolds in a way that we perceive as topsy-turvy, without any clear uh, direction. The world feels to many people as if it's going in some kind of arbitrary system when it's not. HaKadosh Baruch Hu is guiding everything. I think that's another thing you appreciate when you see the whole sweep the whole dramatic arc of history, you appreciate how much a Kaddish Baruch is behind every single detail. It's just in, the, in our ignorance, as we're immersed in the middle of everything, especially as we're in Golis, we tend not to see that. But you connect the dots and everything bad is true. So that's really why we're crying on Tisha B'Av, and if you appreciated that, I mean, my hope is that after re-experiencing this class, this coming Tisha B'Av, next summer, you cry crocodile tears in appreciation of everything we've been through. I mean, by then, Bezrash Hashem, the Beis Hamikdash will be rebuilt. But uh, but short of that, uh, we sh- we should we should definitely empathize. Yes. Yeah, Kolias Kreskel is that, that that that's implying that he actually was the, the Mashiach. That, that's false in itself. That. No, You're saying because uh, Christos, the term Christ, Christos or, means mis- Messiah. Just fair enough, fair enough. We're, we're Messiah killers. We would say, no, we could then deny it reasonably and say, we are not Messiah killers, but there was a Turkey by the name of Jesus who lived 2,000 years ago, and he was, he, the, the Bastian, the Sanhedrin actually hanged him. Uh, it made, it made him Chayef Skila for, for, for all kinds of heinous crimes that he came to the, according to our telling of the story, based on that Gemara I just referred to, if it indeed, this question whether it really is referring to Jesus, but if it is, as Rambam at least says it is, then indeed we are Christ killers, just don't tell Mel Gibson. 
and other, other radical Catholics who reject Vatican II. I'm really ahead of myself. We'll do all this. Vatican II is a major declaration, came out in the mid-1960s, mid where the, uh, the Vatican under the Pope declared for the first time in history that, in fact, the Jews are not Christ killers. Don't correct them. Uh, and um, and more significantly, I know fun, it's funny, right? Right? Now, they've been claiming, but but it's true. By their account, at least, they claim the Romans were the ones who done it. Daniel, you got that? By their reckoning, the Romans done it. We're we're innocent as charged. By their account, we by our own account, we definitely are Christ killers. Right? I, I mean, I didn't personally do it, by the way. But the Sanhedrin done it. it look at the again. It's the Gemara Mem, Mem Gimel Amid Aleph in Sanhedrin. What's that? No, we don't take pride. There's just a certain ironic glee in there. The second point in Vatican II, forgive me my morning sheer for repeating this, but it is an important, it is important thing, and since we're on topic, um, the Vatican II also said, did you know this? You know, they came out of Vatican II, and they said, we're not, we're officially not Jewish, we're not Christ killers, and we, we, uh, and the Vatican condemned all anti-Semitism that they committed, the Doridoros. That's official. That was 1960s. What's less appreciated in 1960s is they came out with the secondary, a corollary ruling, and they said, they said, even if the Jews were Christ killers, we shouldn't be angry with them. We should thank them. After all, a basic tenet of their theology is that, you know, Yashka died for the sins and all the rest of that. It's part of the good part of their... The, 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 so they have no reason, in other words, to be angry at Kval Yisrael. Something that... So stick with me. We're going to do all this properly, and I'm going to talk about test, what, what Augustine called testa veritatis, and we're going to talk about um, what's called supersessionism and and all these all these various basic underlying principles of Christian anti-Semitism and how they found devious, brilliant, clever ways of devising a whole theology around anti-Semitism around Jew hatred. But we're ahead of ourselves. Meanwhile, back in Malchus Yisrael in the north, Yeruvim uh, II, and you remember there were five generations in the house of Yehu. And if you don't remember, that's fair, because I've thrown so many names at you. Uh, it's reasonable to get uh, confused here. And oh, Yitzi, you're in for a treat today. We've got lots of names. We're nearing, we're in the mid to late first temple period, and the north is about to fall. And the last kings, and there are going to be a bunch of them, and I passed out these lists. If you want to take a peek at somebody's uh, notes, these, this list, if you notice, the names get nice and scrunched together near the end because they're a lot in a pretty short period of time. That already tells you something about the... Uh, it, it was, it was um, if you were a king in the, late, in the northern empire in the late first temple period, uh, it, you were not necessarily a good bet for insurance companies. Life insurance, right? Uh, oh no, yeah, right. Because they died, they died young and extraordinarily uh, un unpleasant deaths. Um, now, Yeruvim the second, who's the fourth, second to last, penultimate of the kings in the house of Yehu, is able to fight off Aram. Aram, who's the big bad guy. They're they're, they're the bad uh, p power up to our northeast. It's under Yeruvim that he's able to to he's able to recover territory. Um, and this was actually predicted by the Navi Yonah. Um, he does this once, but not twice. The second time around, he's defeated. Um, he's not that important to figure, although interestingly, archaeologists claim that they found a lot of remnants from the north, and much of when you go around, let's say, a place like Chatzor, which is a major city in the north, you pass it every time, let's say, you go up to Kiryat Shmona. You cross through the, the biblical tell, and in Chatzor, they found a whole strata that they identify as from the period of Rabbam II, and it's a reasonable guess, because he did expand the land, and there was a certain prominence, kind of the, la the, the last grandstand of the north um, during this period. Um, <clears throat> Hashem was really testing them with temporary prosperity. That's how the Mepharshim understand it. They get one last shot at the gold, uh, at making tshuva, Sometimes we're Hashem, Hashem only wants what's good for us, right? So everything that he puts in our lives, every individual detail is designed around tshuva. Good things happen to you, that's in order to encourage tshuva. Bad things happen to you, that's in order to encourage tshuva. That's the way we're meant to interpret it. So here's one more um, nice present that Kaddish Baruch Hu presents to North. Here's some prosperity, here's some military success. Will that help you? Reclaim the mantle. Will you destroy those agolim, the uh, the eagle in Don and in Beitel? Will you take the guards down uh, and so and to and, and reunite with the south? 
in the end, Yeravam does not uh, does not take the bait. Uh, they will not repent. The great prophets in this period include Hosea, the book of Hosea. Amos is alive during this time. They rebuke Yeravam harshly uh, for not making tshuva. But at least Yeravam, to his credit, doesn't turn on them. We see others who kill the messenger kind of thing. And in this case, Amos, he's, he's, um, he's merciless. And he just blasts the king, and the, and the king hears it and, 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 and accepts it. Doesn't change, but he also doesn't doesn't uh, doesn't uh, doesn't uh, kill Amos. And the Gemara Pesachim says that he deserves for this to be mentioned with the righteous kings of the south, with Malcha Yehuda, because in the end he recognized Amos was a tzaddik. That's a, that's already a madrega. That's a certain level. Now his son is the last king of this house in the north. His name is Zechariah ben Yeravam. He's a bad guy. He takes everything back to the bad ways of the original Yeravam ben Nevat. He's only king for six months. He is, he is assassinated by a fellow by the name of Shalom. Shalom, who had difficulty greeting other people. They always said Shalom Aleichem. The uh, Shalom kills, kills Zachariah, downfalls Yehud's dynasty. Shalom rules all, all of one month before he's assassinated by a fellow by the name of Menachem. And Menachem's survival is a little bit longer. He goes 10 years. He's then, he's then, uh, he's put out of the way. And the next king is Pekachia ben Menachem, his son. He rules two years. And guess what happens to Pekachia? Pekachia is killed off. I'm putting all this in quick, rapid succession so you get a feeling the, the north was anything but stable in this period. And again, if you were a king, you, you know, the ins life insurance companies were not taking out policies on your life. So Pekach ben Menachem is, is, uh, is murdered by, by uh, and lasts only two years in office Pekachia. And uh, finally, his captain who murders him takes over. Pekach is his name, Pekach ben Remalyahu. He now lasts for 20 years. So that's what's going on in the north. Okay, not much other, not, not much else is remarkable there. That's why I don't have much to say about it. Just like the Navi who includes those things in the, in Sefer Malachim or alternately in Divrei Yami, but they're only telling us those those bits of history that are relevant for us that are going to give us some musr or understanding. So too, that's what we're focused on here. So the north is mostly going down, is declining steadily, is near the end. And, and Pekach ben Ramaliyahu is ruling there for 20 years. It's more interesting and more consequential for us what's going on in the south. In the south, and now, now the story gets uh, a little bit more colorful. In the south, a, a big vote of encouragement as best we can. We officially start after Mincha. So as much as right now it's 4.10, uh, most of you arrived within the last few minutes. So if you can come earlier, that's better. We already did a whole, whole section. Um, Yosam ben uh, Yehu, uh, Yosam dies, and the next king is Ahaz. Is Ahaz. Yosam's father was Uziyahu with that tremendous earthquake and the tsaras on his forehead. Remember this? He was then incapacitated, so Yosam was the region king and then the official king. His, he never goes to the base of Mikdash. His son Ahaz was the one who then never went to the base of Mikdash. And that was very unhealthy because he wound up interpreting that negatively and he turned against Hashem. And Ahaz, Ahaz, a big bad man, uh, Ahaz turns away from Akadosh Baruch Hu. Um, he turns to idolatry, not just the small kind, but big time. He does it enthusiastically. He even turns to worshiping the Molech. Now, the different brands of idolatry in the ancient world, this one is one of our famous ones because of its mode of worship. Do you remember this? What, what do they do? They passed. It wasn't necessarily a sacrifice because the kid could survive. The Molech, the Navi Yirmiyahu, describes this massive gargoyle-type figure with these big plodding hands made of stone that were somehow uh, kept in a constant uh, state of fire. And the mode of worship was to take the boy, the little boy, baby boy, and to pass him through the fire. Uh, usually that was lethal. Ahaz, Melech Yehuda, the king in the south, did exactly that with his son. Yes, Jake. Uh, 
Yeah, it's interesting. We right at this right. Good. Thanks for highlighting that. Remember what we said, for example, about Amatsia and his mistake. Amatsia was somebody when he captured the idols from Bnei Seir. He brought them back. He even bowed down to them. Not because he took them seriously. It was nonsense. They didn't really believe in it. But that's just what you did. And people sometimes conform to the societal norms. So that's what they did. You know, uh, I guess today we would say, you know, I shook hands with a woman in business because that's just what you do. Not that it's mutter. It's not mutter. But that's what you do. So people rationalize their actions based on what's common, was prevalently practiced. And that, that was, that's one kind of Odazara. It's still an Isidiraisa, but it's, 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 again, it's leap years away from this brand of Odazara, which he's doing with a gleam in his eye. Uh, 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 he's, he's, he's serving at those. He's, he's, he's rebelling against the Kaddish Baruch Hu. He's doing what we call lahachis. Lahachis means to, 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 get, to get under a Kaddish Baruch Hu's skin. By the way, he's not the worst. It's going to get worse than him. But he's pretty bad. And in the South, we haven't seen... We've seen some pretty bad. We saw Yehoram, we saw Asalia, we saw Yehoash. Um, and, and Ahaz definitely deserves to be uh, mentioned in their, in their company. He is certainly no good. He takes his own son and passes him through fire. Anybody know the, the son's name by chance? We're, hopefully, maybe we'll get there today. Uh, we'll get there today. We might get there today. I hope so. His son's name? Among other places, I usually mention that when I'm guiding there. It was, it was prevalent all over, uh, and one of the places was in what they called Geben Hinom. It was one of the reasons why that valley uh, was a horrifying and remained a horrifying place even in the 19th century. You know what we're talking about? Elon and I are both into Eretz Israel and geography. So sometimes he'll, make it, he'll ask a question presuming too much knowledge. That's not fair. Uh, and I'll, I'll do the same too. Uh, picture you standing by Jaffa Gate, let's say. Can you do that? Yeah. Jaffa Gate? Shariafo? You've got to give me some feedback here. Yes? No? Maybe? All right. So there's a big valley down there, which is really pricey nowadays, among the priciest real estate in the world, gazillion dollars. It used to be no man's land in the, in the years, in the, in the 19 years, uh, between 48 and 67. That's where the Jordanians from the, um, the uh, Chomotair, from the uh, city walls, the ramparts, they used to play target practice in the Jews across the valley. That valley is Geben Hinom, Gehenom. Oh, fantastic. And this is mentioned in Gemara and Sukkah. There's all kinds of interesting about Gehenna. And that's what, that's what uh, Ilan is just saying. And therefore, there was, we know that among, among the terrible things that happened in Geben Hinom was they worshipped the Molech. And the legends persisted even into the modern era. And in the 19th century, when um, Moses Montefiore, Sir Moses Montefiore, great philanthropist in Oiv Yisrael, somebody who loved the Jews and, and was from despite his wealth, um, he tried to convince Jews to move across the valley to leave the confines of the old city, which had become unlivable. The sanitation was terrible, disease-ridden, and a terrible situation, and that's where he built the windmill, and he built Mishkan Shananim, the first settlement outside, Jewish settlement outside the city walls, and he couldn't, he couldn't pay them off to live over there, because in order to get there, you had to cross through Geben Hinom. Some of the Jews uh, stubbornly wound up doing it um, they would go in the daytime to sit in the homes of Mishkan Shananim, but then immediately when it, when it was starting to get nighttime around this time of day, they would flee across back to the old city to sleep at night. And that only changed uh, after a couple decades when there was a terrible, terrible disease in the old city, and everybody in the old city was wiped out, and outside the walls, not everybody, but a lot of people died in the old city, and outside the walls, they fared much better, and people started leaving the old city walls. Yes, Geben Hinom. Um, I don't know that that's the place that Ahaz offered his son, Chizkiyahu, um, but Chizkiah must have his story must have ended better because we know his name. So I'm going to leave leave that over for uh, in, in a little while. We'll talk about Chizkiah, one of the great figures of all of history. Yeah. All right. That he worshipped the Asherah. You have that independent. I didn't say that. Um, no, that's not Achaz. I mentioned by Achaz that he did. He brought in the Asherah. I did by Achaz. It could be. I thought I thought it was in reference to somebody else. But I. Yeah, 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 yeah. I think that was, that, yeah, correct. That was Yehoash. That was Yehoash, yeah. It was in the valley there. Yeah, it's true. Uh, it's a reasonable assumption. And, and, you know, if you become a tour guide, as you seem to be destined to do, so you might tell such stories when you're guiding the area. Okay. Um... <clears throat> 
I tell the story and, and the way to try to be, I mean, my interest as a tour guide is not to, even though a lot of tour guides want people to feel this was the place because then it's more geschmack, it's more satisfying. I'm not as satisfying a tour guide. I try to give the intellectually honest approach and I say, it could have been here, but I can't prove that. It's plausibly here and my student, Ilan, even adds that it makes most sense that it would be here, but I wouldn't go beyond that. Okay. Um, Aram now sets siege to Jerusalem. They come down from the north. Um, they're assisted by none other than Pekah ben Ramaliahu himself from the northern kingdom. So again, this ugly instance of civil war continues to plague Klal Yisrael. So Jews from the north are fighting Jews from the south. Um, it's the only time that in the 450 years of monarchy that a Jew tries to usurp the Davidic line directly. Pekach ben Ramaliah was really a Russia. He really wants to destroy the Davidic line, kill Ahaz, and um, they wound up slaying 120,000 uh, <coughs> residents in the southern kingdom before ultimately failing to accomplish what they set out to do, and Pekach fails, Aram fails, and they're forced to, to flee back north to their homes. Ahaz survives. Ahab, in order to appease, there's a new ruler on the block. It's rising by the name of Ashur, Assyria. We're going to hear a lot about Ashur in the coming days. Um, Ahaz is afraid of Ashur, and to appease them, he takes treasures from the temple and sends it up to, the, uh, to, to Ashur. By the way, I don't know, you know, depending on what you wind up doing in your lives, you never know what kind of jobs people wind up taking. If you ever have custody over the great treasures of the temple, please don't send it to our non-Jewish foes. Not good show. Kaddish Baruch Hu does not, uh, does not see this in, in a kindly light. <coughs> What's that? That sounds like a great idea. Yeah, right, it does. You probably... <laughs> the, um, Hashem punishes him and he's trounced by another enemy, the Plishtim this time around. The Plishtim are still here. Uh, they're going to recede very soon in the background. But one last show of the Plishtim, they wound up defeating Jerusalem. Um, in the worst, in his worst iteration, Ahaz, and he, this is unprecedented, rebelling against Kaddish Baruch Hu, he closes the door to the Ulam, to one of the, to the, to the chamber outside of the Kodesh Kadoshim is the Ulam, is the Heichal, and he closes the doors to disrupt the worship in there. And that's a clear and direct spit in the face of a Kaddish Baruch Hu himself. He goes to the Ner Ma'arabi, the holiest of the candles, the western, uh, the western flame on the seven-branched menorah. <laughs> he extinguishes it. It's miraculous. It's never supposed to be extinguished. And, and, and uh, Ahaz does just that. Um, he does it on the 18th of Av, which was for many years a fast day because of that event. Uh, we don't fast on these days anymore, but it was a fast day. Um, he gets rid of the Korban Tamid. He gets rid of the Taurus. In other words, he's completely disrupting our connection with the Kodesh Baruch Hu, the worship in the base of Mikdash. And that's by design. Most of Klal Yisrael oppose him, but are powerless really to, to stop him, to depose the king. He is, he is from the Davidic line. And yet, in the assessment of Ahaz, very strikingly, he doesn't make the list. Remember the list now? By now we've reviewed, reviewed the list so many times. Who are the three kings? Ahav, Yeravam, Menashe we haven't met, and then the four commoners, Bilam, Gehazi, Achisophel, and Doeg. And, and Ahaz is not there, and the Gemara asks, why not? And it gives the following answer. And this, these are very powerful statements. Yesh kones olamo b'sha'achas. Elsewhere, the Gemara Nebuchadnezzar tells us a person can buy his world to come in one moment. And we're going to see that too in history. Sometimes you can <laughs> redeem yourself. I mean, Ahaz was a despicable Russia. Did a terrible, terrible series of things in his lifetime. But the Gemara says, his father was a tzaddik. His father was a tzaddik. Yosem was, was good. And his son, Chizkiah, was a tzaddik. Yosem was okay. Yeah, but that was not out of any design. It was out of, out of resisting what happened to his father. Chizkiah was a huge tzaddik. And most significantly, when he stood in the presence of the Gadol Hador, who's the Gadol Hador in these days? We've already mentioned him yesterday very briefly. He's a family relation, if he's really the son of Amots, and his name is Yeshaya Hanavi, the prophet Isaiah. And when Isaiah stood in the presence of Ahaz, Ahaz was embarrassed. 
That's really important. Busha, embarrassment, is a great midah. It means we still retain moral compunction, moral conscience. There are people, and we're going to meet a lot of them in history, who lack such a conscience. They're very scary. In the, it, as low as it got in the first temple period, as despicable as Ahaz was, he maintained a conscience. And when he, when he stood in the presence of Yeshaya, he cowered in fear, recognizing uh, it was not going to go well for him. And he's not cited in those who don't have a, a share in the world, among those who don't have a share in the world to come. And now back in the north, and this is the last time we're going to do this, because Aram falls... As all foes of Klal Yisrael inevitably fall, as we started the whole class, and anybody didn't get this, those of you who came in late, do me a favor, send me an email, and I'll send you this fantastic piece. Uh, my email is really easy, menashebalaiwais at gmail.com. Send me an email, and I'll send you, the, if you don't already know it, this great piece from Mark Twain that, that, uh, that recounts how all the great nations of the world have risen up, uh, challenged Klal Yisrael, they, sh they shone a great light, we, we seemed insignificant in their presence, but they, Babylon, Spain, the Russian czars, they're all gone. And Aram is one of those nations that we'll never hear about again, ever. And instead of Aram, the new nation on the block, Ashur rises up like a lion. And near the end of the 20 years that Pekach ben Remaliau is king in the north, uh, uh, Ashur descends upon the northern kingdom, swoops down, and... and, and the first stage of the northern exile takes place. There are three stages of exile, of what's called the three Galuyos of the north, and the first takes place, and there seems to be two different there seems to be two different views of who got lost first. According to one view, under Tiglas Pileser, the king of Ashur, the tribes of Zvulun, Dan, and Naphtali fall first. And why them? The following explanations, this is from the, the, the Vilnagon explains. Don can be most easily explained. They're right in the north, so geographically it makes sense, but think in history, folks. Come on, you did this. Why Don? Why should Don be, of all the northern tribes, why would Don be a really logical target to go, go first? That's where there's an Egel Azahav. Don also? They were. Don is, Don, Don is fierce of the snake. Uh, they're, they're Shimshon with all the power of Shimshon. But don't you remember the story of Don and, 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 and Sefer Shof team? Don was the one that did, was really centrally involved in that, that series of events, of events we call the Pilegish Megiva. They're the ones who get the pestle of Micha that still stands till, till this point in history. They have Micha's statue and, um, and they're guilty as charged. They destroy Laish. Uh, again, as you said, the pestle, the Egel. Um, that Gras suggests that Zvulun and Naftali live right next door to Dan, and as we say, Oila Russia, Oila Shcheno, wickedness is infectious, and you want to choose your neighbors very carefully. I might as well say it now, I can't believe it hasn't come up yet this year, but pro if you ask anybody who's ever learned with me, I've been a Rebbe for 25 years, um, anybody who's ever learned with me, um, I say, if you don't learn one thing with me, you only learn one, if you don't learn anything, but you learn one thing, take one good bit of, of Torah aside. You have it now? Yeah, it's Yeah, that's good. I have said it. Good. It's Rambam. Get this. Hilchos Deos. I do this, by the way, I was with my nephew in the dining room last year. And I was talking, I said, oh, you know this thing? He said, no, I never heard it. I, I just turned around randomly, and there was a guy sitting on the table behind us. I said, what's the most important thing that if you don't learn anything else from me, at least you get this part? And he quoted Rambam, Hilchos Deos, Perik Vav, that's the sixth chapter, the first couple of halachos, in which Rambam says, and I couldn't believe, I couldn't agree with this more. This is really, a, this is something to live, words to live by. Um, we are social creatures. Therefore, we will be influenced by everybody that is around us, and we have our choice to decide where we're going to live in this world. Choose to live around Sadiqim and Talmud Chachamim. Marry into such a family, do your business with such people, make sure your friends are made up of such people of tzaddikim. If you cannot find tzaddikim to fill your life, to, sur to surround yourself with, go off and live in a cave, if necessary. Everything will follow based on your associates. So, and, and the opposite is also true. If you're going to be around Rishayim, you're going to stoop, you're going to be influenced by them, and inevitably you'll lead a life of mediocrity, if not worse. 
Okay, so that's the suggestion, perhaps by Naphtali and and uh, and Yisachar by association. They're nearby Don. Maybe that's the case. Maybe we're being too harsh on Don. It's it, this is this is uh, this is one shot as to why they're the first tribes to go in the three-tiered Golos that ultimately will overwhelm the north. They're the first to go. Yeah. No, it's all counted as part of Eretz Yisrael. You're thinking of Reuven God in Chetz Yishev and Menashe. Don is in Eretz Yisrael property. It's the furthest north in Eretz Yisrael. You can go to a, a national site in Israel today called Tel Dan. That's reasonably, arguably in that exact place. And you can actually see a place that they think was the Egel that Yeravim built. Really interesting to go, go you can tell I get a lot of Gishmak out of getting these places. Um, there's another view. The Medrash Rabbah indicates that these are not the first tribes to go. That the first tribes to go are actually the two and a half tribes across the, the Jordan River. Yeah. Reuven got in Shechet Shevet Menashe. And the reason, the explanation given there is that it's true. They kept their word to Moshe. They kept it in grand style. You remember how they were the first Chalutzim? They, they, they helped conquer Eretz Yisrael. But their initial request in the Torah itself that maybe now that we've conquered our own land, we could sit out the rest of the fighting was so off, was so, as we say in modern world, not the Seder. They were, they were so wrong-headed for them to even think that they could exempt themselves from the national um, mitzvah of conquering the land of Eretz Yisrael that in a sense, don't separate yourself from the community, that, that the, the stain of that initial request never faded. And, that, and that's the explanation why they were slated for early Gullus. Okay, one of the two groups uh, is already going, and, um, and now very, very, very rapidly, the rest of the North is going to fall quickly. Quick question. But, but they, they worked for the night outside of the river. Were they able to go to Jerusalem? We don't find that. Were they able to go to uh, Temple? No. No, so those are also... They're all part of the northern kingdom. So, they, 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 so the French even went into... As it were, they, were not, they, couldn't, they weren't able to get to Yerushalayim. Correct, they're all part of the, part of the north. The last king of the north is named Hosea ben Elah. He kills off Pekach ben Ramayahu. He rules for nine years. He recognizes he's arguably one of the reasonably decent fellows who rules in the north. He recognizes the source of all trouble in the north were those guards that were posted at the very beginning of the northern kingdom, uh, the guards preventing people from getting down south. And the Maritani says on the celebratory day of, let me know which day of the year, he finally after a long, over 200 year, 250 year uh, existence of the empire, Hosea ben Allah is the first one to take down the guards on the day of Tuba'av. It's one, it's the Gemarantinus describes it, one of the uh, great things that happens on that day, why till today, uh, it's a day of celebration. The Gemara says that when Hosea ben Allah takes down the guards, it's a simcha that was on the level of the simcha we feel on Yom Kippur, and the people celebrated, then something very strange, with all the celebration, and finally the, you know, ding dong, the witch is dead, the guards are down, and suddenly with all the celebration, the Medrash in Tana de Beliau tells us, on whole, with some exceptions, the northern kingdom neglects to do Aliyah Larego. Finally, the thing they've all been waiting for, they've been davening for, finally a chance to reunite with the south and go and be all the regal and, and, and be makabal pnei ashrina down in Yerushalayim, and most of them don't go, including Hosea ben Allah himself. I've got to kind of wonder what is going on with that, and the, the Mepharshim certainly do ask that question. They have no excuse. What do you suppose is the, is the, is the reason? And again, something we're supposed to do, learn some muster from as well. Why would you imagine they didn't come? I think so. The power, I, I, that's where I was going to go. The power of human inertia, once you're used to a bad trait, it becomes so ingrained. The idea that you would go against it proactively, most of us don't. Right, when Avram Avinu left his father, that idea of just going and breaking or shaking yourself from the inertia and doing something dramatic with your life to turn things around, you have to realize that's the exception. That is what Klal Yisrael has always stood for. 
We are the people who stands against the majority to do the right thing in the face of difficulty. We do what's difficult, but we understand sometimes we didn't rise to it, and that's exactly the story that does in the northern kingdom. And they don't go, and because they don't go, Hosea ben Allah is blamed, the northern kingdom is blamed. As king, he should have told them to go, not just let down the guards, but he should have directed them to go. Uh, we know some did go, and we're going to see that soon enough. Chizkiah Melech in the south is going to invite some of, some of the people down to celebrate, um, but most don't go. And the king of Asher is named Shalmaneser, finds Hosea to be treacherous. He takes him to prison. And uh, there were two initial galuyos, as we mentioned, whichever order they come in. In the end, the final galus, all the remaining northern tribes are captured. Asher takes them, takes away, captures Shomron, which had been the capital for many, many years, for the majority of the period of the northern kingdom. And the, the northern kingdom falls. Not everybody leaves. There are stragglers. We're going to comment on them. But the overwhelming majority of the northern kingdoms, what we call the ten tribes, and today the ten lost tribes, are taken captive. As we've been saying, to be more pedantic, it's really nine and a half tribes because it's not a full. It's nine tribes plus whoever of the tribe of Levi and the Kohanim, obviously, um, are taken north. And now the question is, whatever became of them? Yeah. Tiglas Pileser. Shalmaneser, correct. Third one is Sancheriv. And the Gemara in Sanhedrin tells us they're all one and the same. The Sancheriv has ten names, including Tiglas Pileser and Shalmaneser. And like we see people with multiple names, most Rubino all the way down, they each, met, they each reflect a different manifestation. That's how the Gemara reconciles it. In the history books and in the secular classes on the subject, they refer to them as, as, as different people. Fine. How do we know that Akash Baruch Hu himself mourns the, the loss of the nine tribes? I have to tell you, it was really powerful to me. I mean, sometimes I'm guiding. At the, what I'm guiding is so much more powerful than, it's not my presentation, it's the content. We, I guided the Shomron. And at the very end of the trip around the Shomron, around the city of Shomron, which today is off limits to most people most of the time, that's why we need a special army escort, but I, I, I ended with this story, and, and I really felt shaken. And the sadness, I mean, that we should feel till today, Klal Yisrael is Klal Yisrael, because we are about brotherly love. Achenu kol beis Yisrael, hanutsum our brothers. And we should feel till today the lack, the loss of, uh, of these significant tribes Hashem himself mourns their loss. The famous pasuk we read in Rosh Hashanah, Haven Yakirli, Dvekis has a beautiful melody to it, Haven um, Yakirli, Ephraim. Ephraim is my son, representative of the whole north. Ephraim represents all the northern tribes. Um, he's a child, he's a mischievous child, he's a delightful child. Um, I'll remember you, says Hashem. What is the fate of the northern tribes, these, 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 these tribes? We're going to still hear from them. Um, we know that, first of all, individuals survive. As I said, we know of members of Dan, Ephraim, Menasha, Asher, Zvulun, who are spared Gullus. There are not many of them, but they're there. We know because Chizkiyahu uh, and later Yoshiyahu are going to invite them to send Pesach down in Yerushalayim. We know um, later on, Yechezkel, independent of these tribes, Yechezkel will revive what are called the dry bones in Bavel, a great story. And the dry bones are said to be um, the bones of the people from the children of Ephraim who were washed downstream at, during the Exodus. And they come back to life, and then they reintegrate with Klal Yisrael, and so we may be descended from some of those dry bones. Um, so they're, they're apparently around in Klal Yisrael. We know that... Um, we know that they, that, uh, that they come back and we'll see them throughout history. Um, but in general, the majority of these nine and a half tribes, whatever happened to them is a machlokis tonight in the Mishnah Sanhedrin. Um, by the way, I keep quoting Sanhedrin. Most of what I'm saying at this phase in history is described in the famous Agadata in Perik Chalik, which is very, anybody who's, who's into history, you'll do well by learning Perik Chalik in depth. Um, there, the Mishnah tells us there's a machlokis. Rebbe Akiva's view is that tens of, tens of thousands of Klal Yisrael march to Nineveh and disappear and are gone. Even so, Rashi says, some take that literally, they're never coming back. Lost to history. 
Um, Rashi understands differently. He says it only refers to that generation because of their wickedness. They disappear from the world and they don't have an Olam Haba. But Rashi says that Rabbi Akiva agrees their descendants will return. It's a very, that's a strong modification of that view. Rabbi Eliezer argues, that's Rabbi Akiva's Rebbe, he says, no, they're coming back. And he has all kinds of proof texts to that effect. I'm going to give them later on. This is the consensus view. And the Gemara says, where are they then? Well, there are a bunch of different suggestions. Oh, so let me tell them, let me, oh, oh I'm going to get the Ben Benashbi ahead of me. Uh, the Gemara says, in the name of Marzutra, we understand that they're in Africa. Rabbi Hanina tells us they're in a place called Hare Salug. We don't know quite where that is. Some people say it may be, it may be down in South, South Africa. Uh, the, uh, I just made that up because I saw. I looked at you, Aiden, for a second. Okay, um, Sambation is arguably the most famous image that comes from the Gemara, that there's a famous island surrounded by alternately a, um, um, a sea of uh, fire, Others, others say it's stone, but either way, it's impregnable. It, you cannot, it's, it's, it's hermetic. They cannot get off that island because for, set, for six days of the week, the, uh, the place is surrounded by fire, and on the seventh day, the fire rests, but they don't travel. So on the Sambacho, that's where the nine and a half tribes are trapped and live. And they keep Shabbos? And they keep Shabbos, presumably, and, uh, and eventually they're going to come back from the Sambacho. They're famous, iconic figures that dot history. We'll learn about them. Eldad Hadani in the period of the Gaonim. David Haruveni. You just mentioned the Bnei Menashe, the so-called Bnei Menashe. The people come from the tribe of Menashe from India uh, today. There are a bunch of them. If you go up to places like Beit El and, and all around, um, you see members. Um, the Rabbanut's approach to them is to convert them. Dan, Dan, too, Daniel. Dan also, right. Um, the Ethiopians, the red basis of the opinion of the Ethiopians come from the tribe of Dan. Um, some say maybe um, there's some, uh, some people who in Persia may come from Ephraim. They all claim descent. Many of them are probably imposters uh, because, you know, they're Jewish wannabes. It's really complicated without sliding into too much of a tangent. Let's say they are genuinely descendants of the ten tribes and they want to reintegrate with Klal Yisrael, halachically, at least according to the Ashkenazi post scheme, they're in trouble. Does anybody know the sugya? Anybody know what I'm referring to? I've, I've talked about it before. Briefly then, without sliding into too much of a tangent, but you should be aware of this. Uh, Ethiopians, let's say, if the Rabbis is right, they come from Dan. What it means is that for all these years, they've been living um, as Jews without the Torah, without the oral Torah, the oral traditions, which among other things teach us how to get divorced properly. Without those oral traditions, after all, the Torah itself just says that the man has to write for a woman a safer Christus without specifying how do you go about writing that bill of divorce. Without Chazal telling us that, for example, it has to be written lishma, it has to be written deliberately with her name, it has to be signed in a certain, it has to be done in a very deliberate way, the get is null and void and she's not rightly divorced. Well, what happens to a woman whose marriage, to get married in Judaism actually is a piece of cake. You can get married with remarkable swiftness. Who knows the first mission in Kedushin? Kesef Shtarubia. Doesn't take much to get married to a woman and therefore their marriages are almost all certainly valid on a Torah level. Um, there's a chuvin Rav Moshe where a guy and a girl were joking around at a party and the man said, gave, her, gave the girl like a Cracker Jack ring and said, ooh, hareat nekudeshitli as part of the shtick. And then after the party, somebody said, um, you know, you might want to ask Shaila and Rav Moshe Paskin that he had to give her a get. Don't play around like that, kids. Not, not the halacha is not a joke. And she can't marry Cohen now. Right, she can't marry Cohen now. Ah, that woman. Awesome. Yeah, good, good catch. Exactly. So marriage happens very easily. Divorce not. Imagine now that there are these people living for all these years. In the end of days, when they come back, Eliyahu Nabi is going to resolve all these issues. We don't have to worry about that. For the time being, however, it's very, very complicated. If indeed the Ethiopians or the Karaites or many other populations this, this, this affects come back and they want to, they want to re-enter Klal Yisrael, they're now in the status of what's called Sofek Mamzer. You familiar? Some of you are looking down as if you're playing with your machines. I ask you not to do that in my class or anybody's class. It's just not respectable, Torah. Um, so unless you take notes, in which case then it's by all means do it and it's respectful. You use your discretion. The, um, 
Suffolk mumzer is the worst possible category. I wouldn't wish this on anybody. A mumzer can only make, a mumzer is a child of a, an illicit union. So let's say she's adulterous and she has kids from the new marriage, the new right. union. That child is a mumzer. However, a mumzer at least can marry another mumzer or a convert. They can't marry a regular Jew. Okay, that's a mumzer. Why would there be a Suffolk Mumser? Well, this is exactly the scenario. You have an entire community that for generations, their marriages are all valid. Some of them are getting divorced. The divorces are definitely not valid. After a while, some of those women who get divorced, according to their standards, are going to get remarried and their new children to be Mumserium. If you have an entire community after generation after generation living like that, some of them are going to be Mumserium. Mumserium. Some of them are not going to be Mumserium. And collectively, they get the stain of, becau of become becoming Suffolk Mamzerim who can't marry anybody, if you think about it. Because they, they can't marry a uh, Mamzer because they might be a regular Yisrael. And they can't marry a Yisrael because they might be a regular Mamzer. And it's a mess. The Sephardi post can find a way out of it, and generally, the Radvaz and Rabbi Yosef most recently um, permit them to come back and be reintegrated into the Jewish fold, like the Karaites, for example. Um, but the Ashkenazim followed the Ramah over, uh, overwhelmingly and say that it's a big problem to, to, to re-accept them. And that's, that's, the, that's part of the plight of, uh, of these people. What's that? I've just made such a persuasive case for the Ashkenazi position, which I clearly have a bias towards, uh, that, I, that you can't even understand the Sephardi, the Sephardi point of view. Right. What generally the approach that's taken, even by Ashkenazi post scheme, is that I, I didn't answer. Hold on. You, you said something else. I, to give Aryeh your question, how how do we understand the limus chus of the, the Sephardi? They say it's not as cut and dry as I said. That you don't have to be so absolute in, in deeming them uh, Suffolk mamzer. Um, the approach generally taken. Let's say there's a guy. This happens a lot, by the way. You know about the Karaites? You will if you stick with my class. Very interesting. Um, subgroup of, former, of people who were Jewish and then broke off as a, as, a, as a sect from the period of the Gaonim from the 8th, 9th century. People come back and become Bali Chuva who are Karaites. And generally if they do, the postkims say, you're not a Karaite. I mean, I know, this, I, know, I know, let's say in the former Soviet Union, there are big Karaite communities, and sometimes you hear these stories of people who become interested in Torah and then become Bali Chuva. I know one woman, for example, who went to a and said, yeah, yeah, I'm a Karaite. And he said, no, you're not. He said, oh yeah, no, I have papers. He said, I don't believe your papers. He said, you're not Jewish, and we're going to convert you. And if you get a proper conversion, you're covered. And that's what they did collectively in the early 1980s with the big influx of the, the community that came from Ethiopia, who may or may not be Jewish. We don't have clarity till today. The Rabbanut, with the, with the support of the Gedolim, Paskin, they're not Jewish. Therefore, they took them down to the Mediterranean and dumped them en masse. Uh, they gave them a collective conversion, which was doing them a favor. And uh, another tangent I don't want to get into, the Ethiopians. <laughs> yeah, it was interesting, and apparently so, because they really held themselves, in this case, they're in the most leading category, they consider themselves Jewish. And so that kind of a person is different, different than the ordinary convert. It's the same reason why the post scheme are more lenient with somebody who grows up. Do you know that there are a lot of going today who consider themselves Jewish? Let's say a child in a conservative reform home whose grandmother on his mother's side had a conservative conversion. He's just as much of a goy as anybody, as any goy, but he thinks himself as Jewish, and his family has become more traditional over the years. How many stories am I describing? So many people in the world, and that's only going to increase now. And those people, uh, the post, the the the, the base dean is generally more lenient with them. Remember, you don't know though these days. That could be that could be you or me, or not you. Well, yeah, it could be you or me. Yeah, right, right. Um, it could be. It's true. That's one of the reasons why. Understandably, there are people in the from world who are very makbid on yiches and wouldn't marry into a bal bal tshuva for that exact reason because the, the mistaken yiches. You hear there's a mess going on here? Let me get back to our topic. This is a very interesting topic that can slide us all kinds of things. I haven't talked about the Ethiopian community. We'll get to that in the modern day. But last comment, quick. So let's say they thought they were Jewish, right? And all the men of race Yes, they need what's called hatafas dambrit. There needs to be blood drawn from that part of the body um, with the bracha l'shem mitzvah, because the previous one was not l'shem mitzvah; it was not considered legitimate. By the way, since I mentioned, since you mentioned that already, um, a lot of people, especially if you come from a more assimilated background, didn't have a proper bris. They may have been circumcised, let's say, by a doctor in a hospital. But you, if, if you know, if you or you know anybody like this, this usually comes up in a class when I'm teaching, like in a place like Orsameyev, where one guy says, 
hey, I think I was circumcised. And I say, well, you might want to just double check that with your family and see because if you, if you have not been properly circumcised by a mohel, means you have not had a bris, you may be circumcised, but you need what's called hatafas damri, which is to have a proper, uh, you know, bris mila. Uh, and, and you need to do that yesterday. Is right away. So if you know anybody who might be in this category, you'll do them do them a favor and share it. I said that was the last question. Can I can I can I uh, go on? In the end, the consensus follows Rabbi Eliezer against Rabbi Akiva, as the Gemara Baba Basra says. No, we have a principle: no tribe can ever fully perish, and therefore they have to come back. In fact, Yechezkel in Imad, in re in re envisioning the end of days, in the forty eighth chapter at the end of the Navi. He says that Am Yisrael will come back to Eretz Yisrael and the land will be redistributed, redivided into 12 equal parts, each tribe assuming an equal portion with the other tribes. Clearly, the Yechezkel understands they're coming back and arguably most famously in a, in a pasuk that's become a popular song, we have, we have the Navi Yeshaya himself in this time looking as the tribes go into exile and anticipating and envisioning prophesizing in the future it'll be on that day the shofar very famous pasuk the shofar will blast the great shofar will blast and all those who perished in the land of Asher will come and those who were uh, rejected down in Egypt and they'll bow down in the mountain of uh, in the holy mountain of Hashem to Hashem in the holy mountain of Yerushalayim. Clearly written in the future tense and clearly understanding that they're they're coming back one day. Could be, don't know. Not specified in that pasuk. Um, what happens in the in the land now? Uh, it's a very significant day. I'm introducing a lot of major things that are going to wind through history. Meanwhile, the north now is empty-ish. It's not totally bereft. There's some Jews, not many. If you conquer a land as Ashur, Assyria has just done, and we see this repeated through history, you can't just leave it empty, otherwise somebody else, another power is going to come in and conquer it and take it from you. Sanherib does something incredibly significant and impactful. Uh, the uh, mission Yedayim tells us, Allah Sanherib ubilbel es kol ha'umos. As the current superpower in the world, Sanchariv comes and does something and he, he takes all the nations in the world and he confuses them. And he mixes them up. He takes them and he, he transplants them from one geographical corner of the world to the other. It's, it's, if you want, if you're a tyrant and you want ultimate power, it's a great trick. Because when you take people out of their home base, they are literally bereft, they don't, can't function well, and it's a great way to make them submissive to your authority. And that's what he does, very cruelly as well. It's interesting, we find somebody, a good a, a tzaddik doing something similar back in the days of the Torah, but he did it on the Shem Shemaim. He wasn't out for self, uh, you know, wasn't out for uh, self-aggrandizement or power or anything like that. When Yosef, a tzaddik, does a similar thing in Parshas of Aigash, his goal is to move everybody around Egypt in times of famine, and he had the power to do it in order to make it possible for his family, the, uh, his brothers and their family, and Yaakov Avinu, to come and integrate. So his act was not out of selfish interest, but Sanchariv is most certainly motivated by self-gain. Also, also, uh, clearly there, also for the good. In this case, Sanchariv is not doing it for the good. Um, this way, the whole world is more governable, governable less rebellious. Um, it's devastating. It's for this reason, Chazal say, we no longer can identify the ancient nations of the world. So when we talk about Moab and Ammon and Mitzrayim and really all the ancient, and, and Plishtim, they're all gone from this point in history, effectively, because all, they've all been jumbled up and mixed up. We can't identify them effectively anymore. There will be people, we're going to still hear from people called Moab and Ammon, who geographically are living in those areas, but that doesn't mean they're related to the original Moab or the original Ammon. So that's a, that's a very big, significant event. And related to this, and very famous, maybe you know this, this empty area in the north can't stay empty, and so he takes a people from afar, from actually a few different nations, but there's one predominant nation, and he brings them to the Shomron. He takes them from a land called Eretz Kuta. 
and the Kuta people, called the Kutim in Chazal, come and move in. They now come into this land. They live, they, 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 they populate the old city of Shomron. They have no fear of Hashem. They're idolatrous. Eretz Yisrael, as always, is a very sensitive land. Um, it, as the Pasuk says in Parshat Zacharimos, it, it, it vomits anybody who misbehave, it misbehaves. And in this instance, Hashem sends a fleet of lions. And the lions kill several of the Kutim, of this new nation that's, that's now living in the land. They're <laughs> terrified. At least they have the vision to realize it must have something to do with the local God. They don't have much idea of who Akadosh Baruch Hu is. But they say, you know, it's good enough for them. We should convert. And they, t- they request Asher to send one of the captive Kohanim down. And he's not a good guy. This Kohen officiates at a mass conversion, arguably one of the most interesting conversions of all of history, of the entire tribe of the Kutim. And their conversion takes place. We're going to see if it's legitimate and how sincere it is. But they are, at least for the time being, they don't really follow Hashem, um, even though they're afraid of Hashem. These Kutim have another name. They're called, historically, Samaritans, Samaritans or Shomronim. Good and the Good Samaritan, which is a Christian, which is a Christian anti-Semitic slur, and we'll talk about what that means historically, the ramifications of it. These people will be a thorn in the side of the Jews, not every single time, but almost every major bad thing to befall Klal Yisrael from this point, uh, for many many centuries, will be at the behest of the Putin. They're they're responsible. They're involved. They are the, they're even though they are technically part of Klal Yisrael. They are anti-Jewish, anti-Jews. They numbered in their heyday in history somewhere in the hundreds of thousands, maybe up to in the millions. We don't know for sure. We didn't have any uh, uh, census back in the day, so we, don't, we can't be sure of the numbers. They claim they were a huge number. Today, they number 743, although I have to admit I didn't read the obituary sections this morning. Uh, to find out if that number still stands. Um, they're tiny numbers. in the world. I kid you not. Their number is somewhere hovering around the mid-700s, and they're centered in two places in Eretz Israel till today. They're still up on Har Shomron, really down in Shrem, and, and really on Har, not, not, not really, actually, just a neighboring mountain. Har Grizim is their base. Har Grizim, the Mount Grizim, and um, a whole community were re- resettled in Cholon, the modern secular city. Um, and I do trips up there, and we meet with the ancient Shomronim, and, and it's a big kick. Uh, I, I, I take all kinds of people. I even took my tour guide training class up there when they offered their Korban Pesach, uh, and one of them shefted a goat and splattered blood all over one of my students. Yeah. Um, so they still exist till today, and we're going to see a lot of them. So take note of the Kutim. Um, by the way, they have a whole new, they have a whole different story. They have their own version of, of historical events. They don't like so to be called Kutim, even though they clearly historically are Kutim till today. That's their version today. Stay, stay tuned. Stay tuned. Something unprecedented and, ext- and unique will happen to them in history. Right now, we consider them Jewish. Should I give away the end? I'll give away the end. They're the only people of converts, the only, the only um, group of converts, only example of this that exists, that Chazal will later, beginning the days of Rabbi Meir and then culminating with Rabbi Abahu, take the entire nation and retroactively nullify their conversion and render them worse than Goyim. But more on that later on. Last comment for today about the Kutim. The Kohen teaches them rudimentary Judaism. He teaches them the Chumash and the book of Yehoshua. That's all he teaches them. Because the northern kingdom has an axe to grind. The northern kingdom never liked the south that much. They're not big fans, among other people, of Shmuel Hanavi. It was Shmuel, after all, who anointed David. And the Davidic line is the competition. As a result, they associate Shmuel with David and the house of David. And in the north, there were three books of the Tanakh that were never that popular. Namely, those written by Shmuel, remember? What did Shmuel bring us? Which books in the Tanakh? No, no, that's Yirmiyahu. What did Shmuel bring us? Shmuel is one book. That's a good guess. So Shmuel brought us Shmuel. That's a good start. Rus and Shoftim. Um, and the, and the, the Northern Kingdom didn't have those books in any central way. And the Kohen never taught them these books. They only had the Chumash. They only had Yoshua. 
And indeed, when you study the modern Shomronim till today, those are the books that they have. And they don't have Shmuel, and they don't have Shoftim, they don't have Shoftim Shmuel or Rus, or any later books. And um, they're the Kutim. They're their own people. They're the Kutim. They're the Kutim. And you'll have to stay tuned. Or, or if, you can't, if you can't stay tuned, I do take requests by email. If you want my write-up on this subject, I'm happy to send that to you too. Or, or we'll do this properly. In the, see, I think it's more thrilling when you see it in the proper historical context. And you see how it develops in history. It makes so much more sense. Why they are this way and we're this way. Um, Rav Miller, Rav Victor Miller uses this as a refutation of the biblical critics who say that the, the, some of the Bible critics say that the Tanakh was authored in the Second Temple period. And Rav Miller says, just, you don't have to look further than the Shomronim who've existed since the First Temple period, right back to here. And as evidence of that, consistently, today they, on, they really only have the Chumash and Yoshua, and that really um, supports this whole story that we're telling. I don't think it's a hard, fast proof, but it is a strong indication uh, that we can argue with the Bible critics, not that we really should or, or would, or we'll, we'll succeed in persuading them. We, we do our best. But um, the Kutim will remain a, a perennial thorn in our side. Um, meanwhile, down in the south, Chizkiyahu HaMelech uh, replaces his wicked father at the age of 25, uh, and um, he is the next bright light uh, that we get, to, we get to pick up tomorrow. Did you lose the